Now, someone asked me the other day, how do you plan sermon series? In other words, what do I, uh, what do I take into account when I pick what to talk about on Sunday mornings? And I thought maybe you'd be interested in the answer, which sounds like this. Half of sermon preparation is what you see me doing, reading the Bible and talking about it. The other part, sometimes the hard part, is reading people. Like, sermons are God's word, but it's more than just reading the Bible out loud. What takes a lot of work is presenting God's word to people in a setting. So, Goshen, New York, February 2024. So, here's what I do, just a heads up. I spend a lot of time studying the Bible, but I also listen to you. So when I'm in the back of church before it starts or after church drinking coffee or during our prayer meetings, in fact, sometimes when the elders leave you voicemail message going, how can I pray for you? And you interact, hey, can you pray for us, all of you, uh, I'm going through this. I, I listen to that and I look for patterns. And when I plan sermons, I ask, what are some patterns, what are some struggles that we're all having? And I look at scripture and I listen to you and I just ask God, what do you have to say to whatever we in Goshen in 2024 are going through, and that's how I planned sermon series. And it was probably toward the end of last year, planning out this year, the pattern that I was seeing from a lot of you, I'll be honest, it was awful. We had some really hard funerals. We grieved, and we're still grieving, difficult losses. Everyone from an older saint to a tiny baby, and so many of us had sickness a bunch of you had uh, to suddenly think about changing jobs or you've worked through divorces in your family or addiction or conflict or you're caring for an aging loved one in the middle of hardship or some of you have been so fortunate, all you've had to do is stay home and watch the news, which hasn't been any better because you're going to the Lord with prayer for what just seems so crazy across our globe or country. That's its own form of suffering. Oh, the pattern I've noticed is, a, well, it's suffering. Suffering is hard. You can't plan at it. You can't plan on it. It comes at you at the speed of life. And it is a test because deep down, every wrong thing that enters your life is a challenge to your faith in a good, sovereign God. Suffering tests faith. Like you have faith, right? You believe that God is good. He's just, and he loves me, and you believe God is powerful, and there's always this unignorable but at the end. God loves me, God's powerful, but the life just creeps up. And every form of suffering, every disappointment can test your faith. And here's the, here's the test. Do I still keep going, believing in a good, loving God, even though I pray to him, and things get worse and not better sometimes. And I have no rationale for this. That's the pattern I've heard. The question, how do I understand disappointment and hardship? And I've got to be honest, this isn't just a thing I've heard thing. This is a me thing. I, uh, I looked back last week at our last six months of prayer requests, and normally I love it because uh, what, what happens a lot is I have a long list of prayer requests, and I'm able to go, Man, I forgot about that one. That was, we were worried about this and what an easy surgery that was. Uh, God was so good. And I like reviewing that because there's so many times where we just take for granted all the times God answered generously. One of the reasons we forget is 
because it gets overshadowed by all the times we pray, we ask God for help, and it doesn't seem like he helped. When we get bad news from the hospital instead of good news, and I gotta be honest, that, that, that's a test. Suffering is a massive struggle for lots of people, and it begs the question, do you keep going? Do you keep worshiping? Do you keep coming to, to church? Do you keep trusting that we serve a big, good, loving God who has a plan even when you pray and you get bad news instead of good news? Do you keep going even when it seems like part of the plan is allowing good people to suffer? Now, that's really hard. It's a tough place to be. This is a topic that's hard to talk about. Saying God has a plan to God be the glory sounds so spiritual. spiritual. Saying I don't I have no idea what God's doing sounds like weak faith. So we've talked about it. We've spent the first part of this year talking about that topic. How do you consider trials? What's your attitude toward suffering and disappointment? And this is our third sermon on the topic. Our view for a minute, we've been unpacking the book of James. And here's what we learned. First, a couple weeks ago, we looked at James 1, verses 2 and following. James makes this provocative claim. He says, here's how you should think about it. Consider it pure joy. Pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This is provocative. Here's what James says. Facing those trials, what kind? Well, many kinds. First, it's normal. Suffering is part of life. What you go through when you feel that, the questions you ask, this all puts you in common with faithful believers of all times. And going through tests, going through those hard times, whatever that might look, look like, call it grit, call it stubbornness, call it perseverance, it's a muscle that you don't just build, but perseverance does something to you. You have to read the next verses to see this, but when you don't understand, and lots of people don't understand, if you keep reading the next verse, it says, well, basically, when you don't know what's going on, ask for wisdom. That it's common to go, God, I don't understand why, and God gives wisdom generously. What we said a couple weeks ago is when you're suffering and you don't understand it, that puts you in good company with saints from Job to Sarah to Jesus. And when you get that perspective when you know how to think about trials, you can consider them joy. Not happiness, but you can, in the middle of suffering, be grateful and content, in part because you know that God does something good to you in bad times. That was a couple weeks ago. Last week, we looked at the second section, starting in verse 12, where James says, Blessed, blessed is the one who perseveres under trials because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised those who love him. In other words, the right way to think about suffering is that right now, this life is a short test. Forever is an awful long time, and God will one day not just make everything right, but he freely rewards crowns of glory, people who trust him, even when you're going through the valleys. And if you put those two things together, it drastically changes how you think about suffering. 
Imagine if you could really think about trials that way. If you could view your big disappointments as a short test with a long, big reward. Imagine if you could see what's true, that God has a big picture plan even when the small puzzle pieces don't seem to fit in your life. If you could start to think about suffering that way, your life would be different. And the next verse is James starts to unpack some of the bad things that happen when you suffer, the differences between being tempted and suffering, and says, I'm not going to review this part, but it says, even though lots of people react in really harmful ways to suffering, you don't have to. That you don't get to pick what happens to you all the time, but you get to choose how you, you re, we react. So we talked about how to react in suffering. That when suffering is disorienting, the first part of James gives you a solid orientation. In short, we talked about how to think about suffering when it's so hard to think because you're disoriented by suffering. That's what we talked about so far, how to think about suffering. And perspective is great. Knowing how to think about things drives your actions. It helps you go forward. But if you're like me, you may get to the point where you understand the right perspective. Like, I know exactly how to think. But there's another big question. What do I do? Like, what should I do when I am suffering. This is where most of us get in trouble. Uh, we fail or succeed, not always based on what's in our head or heart, but it's what we do. And the problem with humans is we're not always consistent between what we believe and how we act. We're inconsistent. And one difficulty is when you're disoriented by suffering, when you don't know what to do, when, look, let's just face it, people do the dumbest stuff when we're going through the worst circumstances. Like when I'm really upset because, I don't know, trials are trying, I am vulnerable to doing the wrong things. And I may feel like, I, I don't know what you do, but like you may feel like kicking the dog or yelling at your kids or driving too fast or drinking too much, but whatever fight or flight response you gravitate toward, you almost feel like you don't have any sort of choice but to do the wrong thing. So what James is going to talk about, what, what you should do. And the first step is to change perspective, right? How do I think? But it doesn't end there. Your actions, what you do matters because it reflects your heart and it affects everybody around you. So here's what we're talking about today. Not how you think about suffering, but what do you do in suffering? What would it look like for you to be someone who's living consistently out of believing the right things what do your actions look like? What does it look like if, to quote James, perseverance is doing its great work? This sermon answers that question. What do you do in suffering? It's a big question. So much of your life is done in reaction to suffering. There's actually a psychological theory that says your entire personality, whatever that is, was formed around complex coping mechanism. It's fascinating. Like, you may be funny, you may be sad, you may be neat, you may be sloppy. And there's a way of explaining all of that by learned ways of coping in your past with brokenness. That you may, you may have coped by messiness by being funny or by controlling your, how clean your room is. In other words, so much of your personality is formed by suffering. And if you could figure out how, what you should do, Without exaggeration, it might change every part of your life. So James talks about it. If you've ever asked the question, I'm suffering right now, what do I do next? This 
might be a life-changing message. In fact, I want you to take notes, lean in, just listen to what God may be telling you what to do because here's the hard fact. You can't avoid suffering and you'll be better off if you could think about it in a good way but also know exactly what to do and what not to do. That's what James talks about. No further introduction. Let's just dive right in. Verse 19, James just says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Write it down, folks, in other words. Circle it in your Bibles, in other words. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This is provocative because you know what most people do when they're suffering and they don't understand? When there's a disappointment that they don't get? You don't even think about it, right? Most people very impulsively do the opposite of these three things. People say things they don't mean because they're going through something they don't want to. In fact, one thing I've just learned dealing with people, it's my observation that most people who I encounter who are angry, they've lost their temper, they're yelling at the waitress or whatever, it, most people who've lost it have actually lost something else and they don't know what else to do. You find angry people, they're usually not even on topic. It's something else. And if you get the perspective, if you're able to have the viewpoint, a philosophy of disappointment that sees your struggle right now as a long-term test that builds the muscles of grit and perseverance, like, that's a good way to think, but what do you do? So James just throws it out there. You'll see today five different things to do or not do. Here's three, uh, and he expands. First, we'll talk about the last one on the verse. Whatever you do, be slow to anger. In other words, you may be very upset, but don't lash out. Be quick to listen. That's the second thing we'll talk about. In other words, now's the right time to learn not to yell. And third, you see it here, be slow to speak. James unpacks it in that order. Here's the next verse. Be slow to become angry. Why? Verse 20. Don't lose your temper because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Being mad, losing it just because you've lost it, isn't going to make things better. It might make things worse Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. All right, folks, test. See if you can finish this line for me. Hurt people, what? Hurt people, hurt people. You've all heard that, right? The simple idea that when you're hurt and you don't do the right thing, often you hurt people around you. Anger is a natural part of grief, right? You know, the grief, uh, the grief process, you start with denial. I'll be silly. I cannot believe the Eagles are not in the Super Bowl. It makes me mad every time I see the stupid commercials. And then you go, anger, right? We got to fire all the coaches and maybe find people who can play and coach. That's, I'm not going to say that's what I went through my mind, but you get what's going on. Suffering people often become angry people. And often, they don't even know why. They've lost it, but they don't even know what it is. And if you push, if you listen, you discover that a lot of angry people are in grief, and they're mad at the wrong person. It's not the dog's fault. <laughs> so they yell at the waitress. They throw stuff at the TV. They drive recklessly. They, people get in accidents. They make impulsive 
purchases. People don't know what to do, so we lose it. And we are quick to get angry. This isn't like a Bible religious thing. This is a people thing. In fact, this is the most common defense in criminal or domestic court, right? You get people go, sure, guilty. I may have done this horrible thing. But you know what people say? You know why I did it? You got to understand. It was because I was suffering. I was depressed. I lost this. I lost that. I didn't know what to do. I'm a hurt person, so I hurt people. And that's a guilty plea, but it's accompanied by not my fault. There's nothing else that I could have done because I was suffering. And what else could I do? Like people really think like this. We think like this sometimes because we don't know what to do in suffering. So we do the dumbest stuff without thinking about it. Or to put another way, suffering can make you lose control. Like Sometimes people get angry. Sometimes people like, have extra self-control. They manipulate things. They, they, they jump on things. But long story short, James says that quick anger doesn't, see says there, it doesn't always produce the righteousness that God desires. In other words, if you're angry and you're angry at this and you, you get angry at, I don't know, that the waitress not bringing the coffee on time, James says, let me tell you what to do. Calm down. Be slow. Being angry isn't going to be a quick fix to whatever problem you're encountering. And being angry is a very natural reaction to grief. James just says, be slow about it. Don't do anything impulsive or dumb just because you're in a trial. In fact, instead of being angry, I I would paraphrase that second part of this as, instead of being angry, be holy. Verse 21, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Like suffering may drive you to lash out at other people, but what if God is actually able to use those moments to grow your soul? Suffering is such fertile ground for temptation. You hear lots of stories of people who end up going through a small trial and end up in a much worse spot. But what if those were moments where you could grow closer to the Lord? To look at the person in the mirror instead of the people out there. That's the first thing. Be slow to anger. So number two, James says, be quick to listen. And you see hints of this already. Suffering seems to be the right time to learn, maybe not the best time to lecture. Maybe it's in your valleys that are the right times where God gets you ready for the mountains, to take your difficult challenges as a training time, to maybe look at the law of God again and examine your heart. Am I right that when the world seems broken beyond fixing, maybe that's the right time to listen to the word of God? And I say that as an introduction to the next passage. What James says next is, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and forgets what it looks like. But whoever looks intently in the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard, but doing it, 
they will be blessed in what they do. Now look, this passage, like some of the other ones, could very well be its own message. You may have heard that message. It sounds like this, don't just read God's word and go home and keep going on with life. Don't just read the law of God and forget about it. Slow down, the sermon goes, and apply it. Read the law of God, read scripture, and like highlight it, circle like elements of your own soul and life, and fix the problems because changing yourself is more than seeing problems, it's working on them. And I, you know, what I'm doing in this message is doing what scholars call a contextual rhetorical read. Like this verse is a good sermon all by itself, and if you take it in general life, that's fantastic. I am making the argument that setting influences meaning. In other words, if you ask me what this set of verses is about, I would read the previous set, and I'd very quickly say, it seems like James is talking about trials. I'll bet this is about suffering. That uh, I don't think James is saying just, you know, if you're reading devotions on vacation, you should do that. Like, I mean, yeah, you should do it. The Bible says all the time. But I think it's a little bit more deep than that. I think James is saying, you know, we're talking about suffering here over and over again. And what James says, when you're suffering, that's when you should be growing. That when you look back on your life and see the valleys or the trials, that you look back at it not with regret to say, that's the time I did the dumbest stuff, don't be like me. I think James is suggesting that you, if you live this way, you could look at the most difficult times in your life going, that's when I spend an awful lot of time on my knees before God going, why are you letting this happen, God? And I still don't know. But I can tell you this, I am a better person. I'm more stable. I'm more content. I have let God's word do its work in my heart. And me being in that valley got me ready for the mountain. Me intentionally committing to follow Jesus in the hard times made me strong for the times of victory. Like that seems to be what God is talking about. That's his plan for what to do in suffering. One more, number three, uh, be slow to speak. And James is gonna expand on this, but he says those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is, worth it, is worthless. Here's what I've just noticed about people. I think some people who are brand new to suffering, they'll get a tiny glimpse of meaning and they become shallow experts. You know people like this, you go to AA once, you go to one therapy session, you read one book, and all of a sudden you're the expert lecturing everybody on, uh, I figured it out, I had the funeral yesterday, I'm not as sad, so I'm going to tell everybody how to get over grief. Like, we, we do this sometimes. A lot of people who are the most quick to speak are also lying to themselves because they don't have the depth of experience. This goes back to what I said before. I think a lot of out-of-control tongues are angry, and a lot of folks, instead of learning and growing and getting the foundation from which they can speak wisdom, I think a lot of people just impulsively rant and set themselves up for failure and lack of credibility because they don't have a tight rein on their tongues. So James says, be slow to speak, 
so that when you do, people benefit from your experience, not your impulses. So when you're suffering, you learn how to think about it. That's good, but here's what you do so far. Don't, or be slow to anger. Be quick to listen. Take suffering as a learning experience and be slow to speak. And then James, it almost seems like he's remembering a couple more things and he just tacks it on. But what he tacks on is amazing. Remember the last thing we just read is that uh, people whose tongues are not reigned, their religion is worthless. Here's what God is really after. Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Well, it's not ranting. It's not anger. It's not sort of impulsive opinions. This is what pure and faultless worship is. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. This is interesting to me, because I've never really thought about this verse at the end of this lesson. But I wonder if this is what the text is saying. What do you do when you're suffering? What if James is suggesting this? Take your eyes off yourself for a minute. Think about other people. This isn't a, there's always someone who has it worse than you kind of thing. This isn't a, Oh, I should say this is a, the world doesn't revolve around you thing. Orphans, widows, these are society's most vulnerable people. I think in James, it holds as a, a functions as a placeholder for the most voiceless, vulnerable people in society. Sometimes I tell people, when you're lonely and you go, how come my phone's not ringing? Uh, you could actually make calls from this thing, right? Call someone who might also be lonely. Uh, or whatever caring or looking after looks like. But then it, it doesn't end there. It ends with, and keep yourself from, see that word there, being polluted by the world. So don't just look at other people, but guard yourself with this idea that suffering can mess you up. Don't let anger or pride or a sense of offense, don't let anything in a really messy situation mess you up. Don't let the toxic situation you may be avoiding toxify your heart. So that's what I believe James is saying. In suffering, instead of lashing out, instead of navel-gazing, instead of lecturing, instead of uh, ranting, here's what you do. Five things. One, be slow to anger. Don't lose it even if you've lost it. Be quick to listen. What could God be teaching me now? Be slow to speak. Serve the vulnerable. Think about other people. Take your eyes off yourself and look at people who are also struggling. And be holy. Guard yourself. See what God may be doing in your soul. Now, for me, the terrifying thing about this list is that these five things, take them one at a time, these are the exact opposite of what most people do when they're disoriented by suffering. And I have to talk about this. The only way you could be so different is if you have something different to stand on. This passage assumes in the backdrop of James is that you are someone who trusts, not in yourself, not in people around you, but you trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who God loved, who suffered, who rose. Jesus, I mean, this cross is a symbol that God's beloved son suffered and God somehow made victory out of it. This list of five things is 
we could only do this if you know and trust Christ. And if that's not you, we'd love to introduce you to what that means. But most of you, and I know most of you, you know Jesus, you trust Jesus. Our problem is that our actions aren't always consistent with what we believe. So we often do the opposite of these things. But I want you to imagine for a second if that was all different. Imagine if we could be the kind of people who knew how to think about suffering, but we also did the right thing. I mean, imagine if you had this almost a superpower to be hurt, but to help instead of hurt people. Imagine if you could lose things without losing it. Imagine if the deepest valleys of your life were also the places where you became the strongest and best equipped to help people because you did what James tells us to do. You, you stopped and reflected and learned. Imagine if we had the discipline to use guarded, wise speech instead of impulsive words. You could have credibility and people could learn from the depth of your experience. And imagine how different we could be if every one of our disappointments drove us deeper into the powerful, loving arms of God and that every instance of suffering drove you to obey God's word in a way that changed you one step at a time to care more for others and be more like Christ. Now, I, I don't know exactly what that looked like in your life. I am, I just, it would just be so amazing if all of our obstacles made us wiser and more loving and caring and closer to Jesus. But I imagine that if that started to play out, I think we'd all start to live out the first verse that we considered. We'd be able to, James 1, 2, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever we face trials of many kinds. And folks, that right there is the kind of attitude, those are the kinds of actions that they seem so small and doable, but when we live it out like that, Folks, I think that could change this broken world into a better place. So, Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us a spirit of humility, a spirit of patience. Father, help us to wait for you when it's hard. We need you every hour. We need you all the time. Father, could you work in our hearts so that we could not just see our need for you, but help us to do the right things. Help us to grow in our struggles, make our weakness things that drive us to strength, and help us to care for the most vulnerable and become more holy. I pray you be with us. Help us to get a sight of your glory and goodness. I ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.